You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories exists to set straight rumor and innuendo that you've heard about your favorite rock bands and rock and roll history. My name is Brian, and that's my best buddy over there. I'm I'm Murdoch, and we are going to tell a story today about somebody this year who we have lost. We did an episode when uh, Little Richard died. Yeah. That a lot of people reached out and said, thank you for doing that. We just kind of went over his career. But is that what we're doing today about Mr. Eddie Van Halen? Or, or do, no. you have, do you have a specific story for us? I got a specific story for it. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about Eddie Van Halen. And, and I've got some stuff we'll put in the show notes for some other people for some things they may not have known about Eddie. Is this the story of Van Halen versus M&M's? Well, it, it's Van Halen versus every concert promoter that didn't read the writer. It's <laughs> what it is. So it's so funny because I got to thinking about rock and roll stories that kind of inspired this concept, and that was one we hadn't gotten to. And yeah. it really is like if I was going to explain this to someone as to what is rock and roll bedtime stories, I'd say like you know how you always heard about how Van Halen yeah. insisted on a certain color M and M in their dressing room. Uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're like going to those stories. So I'm really excited for you to rock through this story because I I've heard it before. I don't know every single specific, but I remember I was much older. Like I was an adult when I finally heard this story, and it made so much sense to me when I heard it. Oh yeah. It's, oh yeah, me it's, too. It's I, very yeah. much misused in our culture um, when people refer to it. They do not put the context around it, and so I think it's important that we do this as a public no. service announcement to concert promoters yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, and and at the time, at the time, uh, it, it got blown out of proportion in a different way uh, too. But um, so let's start. So we lost Eddie Van Halen last week. Is sixty five um, <sighs> in his complications of uh, throat cancer, which. Um, you know, he he had had before. He had went on Howard Stern several years ago and said he had cured himself. Um, I guess just pretty pretty odd. Yeah, um, that's weird. And the one thing about um, there's so many things you could talk about with with him and the band, um, with with the band themselves. Uh, they were a band who who they lost their lead singer or fired their lead singer and got a second lead singer and became arguably a more success well not arguably a more successful band so whether how, you want to say they're better or not they had more hits and they they sold more records and they sold more concert tickets with hagar um just based on sheer like radio play and and they became sort of more of a middle of the road kind of rock and roll band so um, let me ask you who yeah. who else has successfully done this real quickly acdc that, and they nah, didn't. They nah. didn't fire, but they lost their lead yep. singer and still went on. But what other bands have lost the, a very flamboyant it, or known front person and then actually done as well or better without them? It's just ACDC. I can't name another one in terms of like. And if you're if you're in like this group of bands or whatever, like the seventies, eighties era, like that's it, man. Um, I mean, there's interchangeable like bands that aren't as big, but in terms of being really successful, like this is really it. The, the thing that's very that, that's really important about Eddie Van Halen that a lot of people may not have um, around their heads is that he was he was a virtu- virtuoso. I mean, he had patents for his guitars because he made them himself. When did you build this guitar? Oh, seventy four, I think. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Oh, I was looking to uh, 
if you notice an old picture, it had a Gibson sticker on it. Yeah, I've seen those yeah. pictures. And I don't know where I got that sticker, but that was the perfect thing because what I was trying to do was cross and get, you know, cross pollinate <laughs> a Gibson with a Fender mm -hmm. because I loved the vibrato bar. And this was way before Floyd. You know oh, I mean? yeah. Yeah. And oh man, if I go into detail about how he used to keep that damn thing in tune, that would be a whole nother film. He was more like Les Paul than he was Eric Clapton or Jeff Beck, who were like his big heroes, you know? And by pure necessity, when he was younger as a guitar player, when he didn't have the money, he just designed his own gear. And that's why he's a little bit more like Les Paul, who basically kind of, you know, was much more of an, an inventor a little bit and an innovator of an instrument than people that were just masters of it. Like he was a master of it, but he also he designed his own guitar, like the Frankenstein. This right? is a great point. Like, I don't think enough people realize this. I think people think of him. And 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 I will say that the two lead singers almost overshadow the actual namesake of the band. Right. But here's here's what's happened, I, I think. And, and um, I was going to get to this, but um, actually, I'll get to that in a second. Well, I'll get to it right now. You know, in, in the last couple of decades, and I was part of this because I grew up with this band, and um, so, you know, it's 80, 85, David Lee Ross out and they bring in Hagar and they do well for well into the 90s. But then there's always that thing of like, ah, we really wish we had Diamond Dave back. Wish we had Diamond Dave back, you know. And, you know, the, and David Lee Roth, like a lot of other people, thought he was the star of the band. And as a resident of the city of Louisville, Kentucky, I can tell you firsthand from someone who worked at the arena that's down here where Van Halen rehearsed for almost a month for an entire leg of their tour that Alex and Eddie and Eddie's son Wolfgang rehearsed for 30 days and Dave never showed up. And really? it shows because not only does like he look like he looks like a real like anorexic Steve Martin up there with really short hair, like he's just terrible. Like he's just like he's just a terrible terrible lead singer so i and, do remember reports right. from that show when that show and you're talking about the reunion i remember yeah. our mutual friend schumacher telling yeah. me that david lee roth was terrible i do remember. yeah that. he yeah he was he was uh terrible and so the thing is is that now that it happens when when someone dies then everybody like has this freak show nostalgia thing where they go back the star of this band was always eddie van halen there, never, there was never a question, but people forgot that because you had this other person that was always there. Pete Townsend, who, by the way, in my humble opinion, is just really a shitty overrated guitar and a guitar player in an overrated band, said, this is a great quote, um, that that incredible virtuoso combined with that beautiful grin allows me to forgive Eddie Van Halen for letting David Lee Ross stand in front of him. So right. <laughs> here, here is where I really realized this, right? Because I'm a little younger than you and I didn't grow up with Van Halen as much in my straight ahead dash, you know, right, right in my windshield like you did. No. So I actually had an experience where I really had this realization about how important Eddie Van Halen was to that band. And it had to do with watching a band cover Van Halen. So yeah, sure. Murdoch and I used to run this contest when we worked in radio together called the Classic Rock Showdown. And it was basically a battle of the bands for cover bands. And it was, I will not 
espouse my brilliance for coming up with this concept, but for a few years it worked really well because it allowed a bunch of weekend warrior musicians to get out and feel and act like rock stars. And there was a specific band, of, and everybody that was in this contest worked like in a factory or at a car dealership, or but they would show up and with droves of fans and they would pack out these bars and they would play classic rock cover songs and people would lose their minds drinking $2 Bud Lights. Like it was, it was a really fun time and we did it for a few years. But do you remember the band Blackburn? Yes, sure. That was in that group? Okay. And they would always do basically like GNR and Van Halen was like their thing. And they, one year, and I remember we were in what was at the time called the Third Base Tavern, which is one of my favorite bars that uh. no longer exists. It was so gross. And we yeah. were upstairs and... I had to introduce them or something, I think, because I think I was standing on stage when this happened and they came out and they, what their set that year consisted heavily of doing, you really got me Van Halen, the cover of the Kings, the Kings song. Yeah. But the, the Van Halen cover of the Kings, but, but they would start it with eruption and I didn't, yeah. I didn't just, really understand what Eruption was because I only right. knew the big hits from Van Halen. I just yeah. kind of missed Van Halen. And yeah. so I remember watching this guy who I literally do think worked at a factory or a car dealership who would just stand in the middle of that stage and do a pretty good job at nailing Eruption and just realizing, like, this is the guy in this band, right? Like, it's not the singer. It's yeah. not the anybody else. It's the guy who can play guitar like that. And I think that that's when I realized how much that actually translated up to Van Halen themselves. Yeah, and, and for me, so that song um, is, a, for me, is a kink song. And, and radio ruined that, that cover song. But if you were a Van Halen fan and you had that Van Halen first record... It was the it was the idea of how it was the the tracks were together because you listened to eruption and then you really got me was after it and that was that really was what got you into that song you know um, okay so before we get the M and M's I got a couple more things about uh, about Eddie so um, there's this article and we'll put it in the show notes NBC put up this article and it was great I mean I, I mean I'm I've been listening to this band since I was 10 years old. So for 30 years of my life, I've listened to this band. I never heard this story. Um, and this is because David Lee Roth told Mark Maron the story initially. And then there's, you know, these stories that Eddie has told first person since then. But Alex and Eddie grew up in the Netherlands. And then one of their parents was Indonesian. Uh, and they were called half-breeds when they were in the Netherlands uh, and treated pretty terribly and so they came to the united states by boat um and they eventually you know came to california and they were english second language students completely segregated in the schools if you can think about what time like when those guys got here um, and this is a direct direct quote from eddie and we'll put this in the show notes this is eddie saying my first friends in the united states were black it was actually because the white people were bullies. They would tear up my homework and papers. They would make me eat playground sand, all those things. And the black kids always stuck up for me. So Eddie Van Halen and his brother, brother Alex came to the United States as immigrants who couldn't speak English and were made fun of by these racist ass white kids. And I don't know who got the last laugh, but I'll tell you what. It was it was penicillin who cured all of Eddie's problems for ever laughing about any of that nonsense that happened to him, right? 
Um, so I grew up listening to this band. They were a huge part of, because uh, Brian and I both listened to radio and then we ended up getting in, into radio at some point. But like, you know, it was it was already part of like the classic rock lexicon. And, and my mom let me buy those records and I listened to deeper cuts and you'd hear Dave, Dave Lee Roth riffing, saying crazy, weird stuff. And it was really, you know, super cool. And But it all really changed on New Year's Day in 1984. And that's when the 1984 record came out. The, the single for Jump was preceded that. But basically in 1984, that's when Van Halen completely began to dominate everything, not only pop radio and rock radio, but specifically with MTV. And you were... Now, no longer a twinkle in your parents' eye. You were just a little baby when this came out. But like, I watched Jump over and over and over and over again, over and over again. And I taped it off the radio and I listened to it. Eddie completely, effortlessly switched to synthesizers. And really, because of the time, didn't get a lot of shit about selling out and being a, a wuss and not playing guitar. Like, because that whole song was really about that. I mean, arguably the best song... For a lot of people in 1984, is I'll wait, and it's the 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 thing. However, for God's sakes, Brian, it's hot for teacher is the song that is the centerpiece of 1984, right? I wasn't sure what that song was about when I was 10 years old, but I had a pretty good idea after I watched the video, right? In retrospect, for a 10-year-old, that was a little racy. <laughs> I'm nervous and my socks are too loose. Sit down, Waldo. A little racy now for a 10-year-old, like, little boy, right? You know, what do you think the teacher's going to look like this year? You know, uh, give me something to write on. And, and as much as that song and the funny thing was about, like, the P.T. Barnum, like, guy up there and, and David Lee Roth, like, the star of the song, again, in retrospect, is Eddie, where Eddie's playing the guitar solo, walking in the study hall, like down the this down the like the the table. That happens. He's like the the rhythm, and, and really listen. And, and Michael Anthony got a lot of crap, specifically from Eddie, unfairly, and they squeezed Michael Anthony out of the publishing. And Eddie was really mean to Michael Anthony Anthony in the press, and he took it and was arguably Michael Anthony was the best singer in that band, right? But if you really think about it, the rhythm section in a lot of those classic songs was incredibly simplistic. I mean, not saying that Alex Van Halen is a bad singer, bad uh, drummer, right? But it was really simple. And, and, and guys like grew up, and now you see, like, I see girl, like little girls playing Eddie Van Halen, like stuff, like eruption on YouTube or whatever, but guys would play air guitar to Eddie Van Halen. But it was, but it was that left hand where the weird groove was like the summertime was in this left hand. And those were the, that left hand is what made summertime. You could hear summertime in that. And that's where the girls like that. Like, even though it was sort of this rock band and it was incredibly sexist and the songs were misogynistic or whatever, there was something that was arguably kind of sexy and groovy about Eddie without necessarily being like overtly like rhythm and bluesy or anything. It was like completely completely different and that's without being really specific was what made him a different guitar player at the time 
That's really a good point. And I, I want to go back real quickly on the two songs specifically that you, you pulled out because, again, what makes this kind of interesting to have this conversation together is that you and I have a ten year or nine-year gap between us. So I experienced Van Halen totally differently, and I remember hearing about the song Jump and hearing people older than me talk about how defiant, like just mind-bending it was the first time they heard it, and then hearing it in the mid-'90s and being like, what is this? <laughs> like, because I, you know, I knew that Van Halen was all about rock and I knew they were all about guitar and I knew Eddie Van Halen was a guitarist. And so to hear what kind of came to be defined as a more, and I hesitate to use this word, but cheesy keyboard sound. Yeah. Right. Like, and to be used that way, I was like, how is this? How did this blow anyone's mind? Like, this just sounds right. silly. But knowing the historical context and understanding the virtuosity that's behind it is very interesting. The second thing I would say is hot for teacher. I just have to tell this story that whenever I hear that song now, I lived with my two best friends in my last year of college and I was dating the woman I ended up marrying at the time. And we were asleep one night in the back bedroom of the house that we all rented. And we're awakened by some noise. And I'm like, what in the world is that noise? Cause they're just dead asleep, like two 30 in the morning. What had happened is my two roommates had imbibed very heavily and decided that it was a good idea to do exactly what you just described, which was play air guitar and air drums to Hot for Teacher in the living room. And so I walk out bleary-eyed and up the hallway into the living room, and they're both just crap-eating grins, pretending to be rock stars with that cranked as loud as possible. And I was like, guys you have got to stop. And so then they took it, which this is, this is bad college stuff. Don't actually do this. Then they were like, fine. And they got in the car and they drove around the neighborhood (laughs) blaring it so they could do it in the car. And I think that is the quintessential hot for teacher experience for people. And I mean, this was, this would have been, you know, 20 years, 15 years after that song came out. You know, twenty. Yeah, no, closer to twenty years after that song came out, and it still had that sort of oomph to it. In the ah, I think experience. the clock is slow. It has everything. Like it still can talk to a teenager pretty well, right? Name another guitar player, Brian, who smiles, laughs, and grins when they play the guitar as much as Eddie Van Halen. Go. Uh, not John Mayer. Right. Time's up. Yeah. Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> was the instrument it was an extension he he made his own he was the he was the extension it was just an extension of his him as an artist his father was a musician too like they had no money when they were kids like his mom was a maid and his dad was a janitor but his dad was a musician and that's how alex and him became musicians and how wolfgang eventually you know became a musician too okay so how about the brown m&ms let's just let's do this right so I heard this as a kid and, and I always heard, you know, if there was there were brown M&Ms backstage, then then Van Halen trashes the backstage. That's yeah. what it was. They yeah. trashed they their dressing play. room or they'd cancel you know. the show or something. Yeah. Yeah. They, they dr- trash their dressing room. Um, so as a young kid, I love those stories because they seemed so crazy and so unreal. Like it wasn't like real stuff. And then I remember as a kid, like, should I eat the brown M&Ms? That happened. It was part of a thing that happened. Like, like, are the brown M&Ms weird? I remember that being a question. That was a thing. And some kids wouldn't eat brown M&Ms. Why? Why wouldn't kids eat, eat the brown M&Ms, man? I'm wondering. But anyway, so here's, here's the reason why. So at some point, um, 
in the in the eighties, Van Halen went from playing a certain size venue to larger venues. And and while they were doing that, their their stage, their lights, everything got bigger. And unfortunately for them, they you know they had like eight hundred and fifty light lamps on these lighting rigs, and they were going from town to town across the United States to venues that didn't have doors or loading docks to be able to even get this stuff in. So now it was taking six. This is this is this was if this is really true. I mean, this is I read this a couple of different places, and David Lee Roth said this too. It was taking over six hours, six to eight hours extra to load in for their shows. So the problem with that is you're running into union dues, union time, overtime, and then you were getting fined, you're running past curfew, your shows are running late, and everyone's losing money, right? So let me say, as a guy who has been on the side of that concert industry, this is still a thing. And I have I very much produced a show that went, was supposed to be done, uh, everything was supposed to be loaded out by the union at 2 a.m. and we closed at 2:03, and we paid a lot of money over budget because we went three minutes over, which means we had to pay a whole set of new fees. Like you, you, you buy in chunks. So if you go, I forget what the time is, but to explain this, like if you go three minutes into, like you start the new chunk that you've bought. It's like taking one yeah, bite true. out of a cake. So you basically yeah. have to get a new cake at 2 a.m. And it doesn't matter how much of the cake you eat, right. you're paying for the yeah. whole cake. So that's basically what happens. So this is a big thing about making touring profitable. You have to be able to meet those deadlines, and, and it all becomes negotiation. It's like, this is how much we'll do it for, but we have to be loaded up by this time, and that all becomes part of the equation in producing a live show. So that's why curfews are important. It's not about shutting noise off. It's about meeting deadlines for the unions. The unions make this... I'm not saying anything about unions. I'm just saying they make this a little extra complicated. Yeah. And I get to see this in a completely different, even though you and I have done a lot of things and our, our lives have crossed paths career wise, specifically working together. But I, I've seen this in another position where we just had crew and stage hands and people working overtime because of problems. And then we would just start to like all of a sudden there'd be a line item in the P and L. Like when you're trying to settle up money where all of a right. sudden you realize like you've lost more money than you actually thought you did because you had to pay like all these people to stay around to fix all this crap because right. things didn't get done. So, so what was happening is it was taking extra time. So they wanted to make sure that people were, had you know we're we're taking care of and, and making sure that everything was was working correctly and reading everything because if they weren't reading them they weren't reading the rider there was a possibility that there was liability that someone could get hurt their stage was bigger um the lighting rigs were bigger what happens if someone gets hurt so initially it was put in a clause because they wanted to see if people actually read the writer. Um, David Lee Roth, he, the way he, the analogy he made was that their writer was like a Chinese yellow pages. And it was enormous. And in the middle of it, 
it said something like the I, I actually have I actually have the writer, which we're going to put in the show notes too, because I've got it. And it shows it's like in the middle of just nowhere of all these this tech writer stuff. It says no brown M and M's in the backstage area, and what basically it meant that they had language in in the writer was that if there were M and M's that were anywhere in the backstage area the promoter would then forfeit the full pay of the show to the band. So what happened initially when this all became sort of a, a story was that they'd go backstage, they'd see the brown M&Ms, and they would wreck the, the backstage area where all the food was and just completely wreck it. And so then obviously they had to go out and do like a line check on everything to look to see where everything was, where the stage was, where the lighting rig was, and to make sure that everything was okay, that the weight of the stage was okay, that the that the integrity of the stage was going to be all right within the venue, the venue's floor was going to be okay, all of that. And so that was in the middle of that. I mean, think about like, remember when Sugarland had that thing outside like a couple years ago and the stage crashed on those people? That's what the brown M&Ms are for, right. you know? Right. That's and and like I've seen an interview with David Lee Roth and he directly he doesn't refer to Sugarland by name, but he refers to that. He's like the country, the country man whose stage crashed. He goes, that's what this is for. So this is one of those things where history has really shown how brilliant this was. And and Sugarland is a great example. The other example that comes to mind for me is Great White. Right. Like, oh. Yeah, you know, and that's the one that people will remember where it was a tragedy, and this is what they didn't want to happen. And honestly, it's brilliant to say because if you ask someone, "Hey, did you read the writer?" they're going to tell you yes. So they, I think, at a certain point, and of course, mythology has been built up around this, but I assume what happened is at a certain point they had an interaction where they realized they definitely didn't read the writer, and we got off okay this time, but next time we might not. So they said, we're going to put this hidden in the writer. It's going to be the hidden secret thing that tips us off if we might be walking into a catastrophe. And you know what I've never heard of? I've never heard of a pyrotechnic or stage collapse or major issue at a Van Halen show, and they did a lot of crazy stuff on stage. And you know what? It's because they were worried about making sure it was done correctly. I can only say kudos yeah, there there is there is one, and and that's how we're going to close our our story. Where ah. there was there was there was an issue, and it's the it's sort of the coup de gras of the whole not reading the writer. Um, but just to tell you this because this is funny, the word got out. You know, I mean, promoters are uh, they talk to each other because you know it's work. Um, so. David Lee Roth was, um, I, I've got like a link I can put in the show notes too with an in- interview with him where he said that the word got out and sometimes he would go backstage before a show and there would be these old, older ladies, like cafeteria ladies from your high school. And they had like these little bowls and they were going through all the M&Ms, taking out all the brown M&Ms out of the big bowl of M&Ms. Oh, that's not what we wanted. <laughs> right. So he said that like that would happen. So, but so to to just cap this off, that this is a real story that Van Halen did this and not to be maniacs. They were actually doing this for um, liability and security and safety, which is the craziest thing ever. Um, David Lee Ross says that a show that happened in New Mexico, which I've also read that happened in Pueblo, Colorado. So there's a mythology here, 
right? And so this is if you go to Snopes and you ask if this is true, it'll say mixture. So it's a little bit of rock and roll here. Um, so it was a brand new venue and it had like a some type of rubber floor. This is David Lee Ross version of it. Uh, it was like a basketball arena. And there were, um, you know, he went backstage uh, and there were brown M&Ms. And so he himself destroyed the backstage catering area, just threw everything around. And he claims that he did like, you know, probably a couple hundred dollars worth of damage. So the stage outside in the venue in the front of the house, he's backstage. The stage sinks six and a half inches into the venue floor. Um, and so the next day, the, the newspaper said, David Lee Roth, Van Halen trashes venue for with $500,000 damage. And David Lee Roth, of course, said, who am I to get in the way of a good rumor? Right. <laughs> so that's, that's the story of the Brown M&Ms and why you always, if you're promoting a band, always read the writer. So what would be your Brown M&M? What would you put on the rider to make sure that people did what you needed? Butterfinger blizzards. <laughs> what, what, do I, what, what, what do I want? I guess it's the thing you want to take out or yeah, something. Yeah, it's, it's the like, thing you want. It's the weird thing you want to have removed, right? So I, I'd be like, uh, I don't know, maybe like strawberry, fresh strawberries with no stems. That's, that seems like yeah. prudent, right? Because you don't want to eat the stems. So you might as well have them de-stem them. Apples with no cores. Yeah, or you could be like my son who eats apple cores, which is weird. We're going to see a doctor about that. I, yeah, I just, he'll um, eat the entire apple. I'm like, what happened to that apple? I ate all of it. You ate all yeah. of it? Yeah. Yeah, because if, if a dog eats the apple and the whole core, like, dog goes to the vet, man. Straight <laughs> up. I need, to, I, I need to tell you and your wife this right now on the podcast. Uh, if a dog does that, dog goes to the vet. All right, man. Hey, uh, this was this was excellent. Thank you for doing. We should have done this episode earlier, but I'm I'm really glad we were able yeah. to use it as a way to pay tribute to EVH, the man. So, uh, R.I.P. A, a, a true rock and roll bedtime story. Salute to uh, to one of the greats. Rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright 2020. Boy, have we got stories productions. All rights reserved.